Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. Tomorrow, as I record this, of course, it is my birthday and I have just seen the birthday cake that my wife and daughter have made for me. And it is a gorgeous thing. It's a white cake uh, with a white frosting and cheery berries on the top and also berries in the cream in between the layers. And then they piped, or my daughter piped icing all around the edges and put a little fruit on the side. They created an apricot glaze to glaze the fruits. And that will be our dessert this evening. My wife's birthday is in five days. We are born four days apart. My birthday is tomorrow. You can do the math because you're the most educated of podcast listeners. And one of the things, the annoying things about my relationship, one of the many annoying things is that because my wife's birthday is four days after mine, I I don't get a chance to revel in my own birthday because as soon as it is upon me, I have to start thinking about hers. And she likes a fuss made more than I like a fuss made. So my birthday tends to get overlooked a little bit. You know, you want to have the birthday, right? And then you want to have the kind of after birthday glow. And you want that glow to kind of slowly, slowly fade over time. You know, like a nuclear reactor explosion. And the glow just kind of 
permeates until eventually, over thousands of years, it dies. Now, my understanding is that you actually can't see the glow from a nuclear explosion with your eyes. I don't think it's in the visible light spectrum. But maybe, you know, with one of those uh, things, you know, those gamma things, you know, those clicky things, Geiger counters, you could hear the glow. And over thousands of years, it would fade. That's how I want my birthday to be celebrated, like a nuclear explosion. Alas, it is not all these many years. But to bring it to Jude and Sue, I am grateful that my wife and I remain together despite our troubles and our ails, uh, the birthday nonsense being one of many. And I am grateful that my wife and daughter were cooperating enough today to make me a birthday cake. But marriage, uh, whether by law or by, let's say, spiritual compact, can be a delicate thing. And we're learning that now. Well, we knew that already, but it's really come to the fore now with Sue and Jude. Sue has now told Jude that not only does she not think they should be married anymore, they should not see each other, and she should go back to Phillotson. All out of, you know, profound guilt and remorse. She says, because... I mean, look, we know it's because she blames herself for her kids dying, but, we, but, but she says it's because she turned her back on God. And this is her punishment. And so the only way to rectify the situation is to return to her original sacramental marriage, that between her and Phillotson. I mean, who's to say Phillotson's going to even take her back? I mean, we know he will because he's just that kind of, he's just that kind of guy. Um, and he never stopped loving her. He never stopped pining after her. She never loved him to begin with. And as she kind of confessed to Jude, she didn't really love Jude, you know, in that way. She loved him. She loves him, but not in that way until she felt threatened by Arabella. And then she was like, all right, you know, let's consummate this. If that's going to be the only way I'm going to keep you, let's consummate, despite the fact that I am the least sensual person you have ever met. So now they have just sort of said their goodbyes to each other. She's kicked Jude out of her boudoir, the way she did Phillotson, and he has descended the stairs into his own despair, chapter four. The man whom Sue, in her mental volte face, uh, and I assume that's Latin, and I assume that means about face, and if that's indeed what it means, I'm going to feel great about it you know, her turning around. I don't know that that's how it's pronounced, but let's just imagine that I'm correct. Because even if it's not correct, let's just say I'm because it it fits contextually. Uh, So uh, she's talking about Phyllis and was now regarding as her inseparable husband lives still at Mary Green. On the day before the tragedy of the children, Phillotson had seen both her and Jude as they stood in the rain at Christminster watching the procession to the theater. But he had said nothing of it at the moment to his companion Gillingham, who, being an old friend, was staying with him at the village aforesaid and had, indeed, suggested the day's trip to Christminster. "'What are you thinking of?' 
that's my Gillingham. I think I maybe overdid it a little bit just now. <laughs> but, you know, that kind of puddingy voice that British people have. What are you thinking of, said Gillingham, as they went home? The university degree you never obtained? No, no, said Phillotson gruffly. Of somebody I saw today. In a moment, he added, Susanna, I saw her too. He said nothing. I didn't wish to draw your attention to her, but as you did see her, you should have said, How do you do, my dear, that was? Well, I don't know if uh, Gillingham is making a little joke. How do you do, my dear, that was? If he's being a little sardonic there. Ah, well, I might have. But what do you think of this? I have good reason for supposing that she was innocent when I divorced her, that I was all wrong. Yes, indeed. Awkward, isn't it? So innocent meaning he thought that they had had connubial relations. And she had sort of led him to believe that kind of. But Arabella had said, no, they they didn't, you know, they didn't do nothing. Arabella basing that really on nothing the last time she saw Sue and, and, and Jude. But so now he, he thinks she was innocent of adultery, I guess. And he, she says, that's awkward, isn't it? She's taken care to sit you right since anyhow, apparently. Yes. I don't know why I said yes. It doesn't say yes. I was, I was in Phillotson's head saying yes just now. But that's not what he says. He says, hmm, that's a cheap sneer. I ought to have waited unquestionably. At the end of the week, when Gillingham had gone back to his school near Shaston, Phillotson, as was his custom, went to Alfredston Market, ruminating again on Arabella's intelligence as he walked down the long hill which he had known before Jude knew it, though his history had not beaten so intensely upon its incline. Cute, cute writing there by Hardy. Arrived in the town, he bought his, uh, turning the page, but it's a little sticky, usual weekly local paper. And when he had sat down in an inn to refresh himself for the five miles walk back, he pulled the paper from his pocket and read a while. The account of the strange suicide of a stonemason's children met his eye. Unimpassioned as he was, it impressed him painfully and puzzled him not a little, for he could not understand the age of the elder child being what it was stated to be. However, there was no doubt that the newspaper report was in some way true. Their cup of sorrow is now full, he said, and thought and thought of Sue and what she had gained by leaving him. Arabella, having made her home at Alfredston, and the schoolmaster coming to market there every Saturday, it was not wonderful that in a few weeks they met again, the precise time being just after her return from Christminster, where she had stayed much longer than she had at first intended, keeping an interested eye on Jude, though Jude had seen no more of her. So she's spying on Jude the way Jude once spied on Sue in that same city, Christminster. Phillotson was on his way homeward when he encountered Arabella and she was approaching the town. Do you like walking out this way, Mrs. Cartlett, he said. 
I've just begun to again, she replied. It is where I lived as maid and wife, and all the past things of my life that are interesting to my feelings are mixed up with this road, and they've been stirred up in me too lately, for I've been visiting at Christminster. Yes, I've seen Jude. Ah, how do they bear their terrible affliction? In a very strange way, very strange, and I'm 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 over enunciating very because in the book it's spelled V E dash R Y. In a very strange way, very strange. She don't live with him any longer. I only heard of it as a certainty just before I left, though I had thought things were drifting that way from their manner when I called on them. Not live with her husband. Why, I should have thought would have united them more. Why, I should have thought would have united them more. He's not her husband, after all. She's never really married him, although they have passed as man and wife so long. And now, instead of this sad event making him hurry up and get the thing done legally, she's took in a queer religious way, just as I was in my affliction at losing Cartlet. Only hers is of a more sterical sort than mine. And she says, so I was told, that she's your wife in the eye of heaven and the church, yours only, and can't be anybody else's by any act of man. Ah, indeed. Separated have they. You see, the eldest boy was mine. Oh, yours. Yes, poor little fella. Born in lawful wedlock, thank God. And perhaps she feels, over and above other things, that I ought to have been in her place. I can't say. However, as for me, I am soon off from here. I've got father to look after now, and we can't live in such a humdrum place as this. I hope soon to be in a bar again at Christminster or some other big town. They parted. When Phillotson had ascended the hill a few steps, he stopped, hastened back, and called her. "'What is or was their address?' Arabella gave it. "'Thank you. Good afternoon.' Arabella smiled grimly as she resumed her way and practiced dimple-making all along the road from where the pollard willows begin to the old almshouses in the first street of the town." Well, we know when Arabella is practicing her dimple-making, she is up to no good. It is her old, youthful trick of coloring her cheeks and making herself just a little bit more attractive to man-folk. Now, what man-folk does she have in mind? There can only be one. And that one is Jude. Jude the Obscure. So, uh, let's pause. And reflect on that and also ask ourselves, Michael, why don't you do voices for cartoons? You're really good at it. And we're back on Obscure. We just left old Dimples Arabella and we go on. Meanwhile, Phillotson, and we know what Phillotson's thinking as well. He asked for the address. He's going to come a calling, and he's going to hope that she flings herself on him. Now, why he would want her back, that is another question altogether. Because, yes, he continues to love her. But after this tragedy, and after all they have been through, and after... I don't know, her psychological break, as Arabella just described it. Does he really want to kind of pick up where they left off? 
Doesn't that sound sort of miserable? You know, Phillotson can get on Bumble or something and find himself pretty little dimple-making wife. He doesn't need to take Sue back. You know, I think that would be a mistake for him. You know, he's there teaching at Mary Green. I had forgotten that he'd taken the job at Mary Green. I thought he was still condemned to roam the earth forever. But he had taken the job at Mary Green, his old position. And we see now how things are returning to the way that they began, right? Phillotson uh, is back at Mary Green. Sue and Jude are parted and cursed as a couple. They cannot be together. Arabella is back where she hailed from. Sue is, we don't know quite where she's returning to, but it might be to Phillotson as she once was. And Jude remains the big question mark. How is he going to end his story? We do not know. Meanwhile, Phillotson ascended to Mary Green, and for the first time during a lengthened period, he lived with a forward eye. On crossing under the large trees of the green to the humble schoolhouse to which he had been reduced, he stood a moment and pictured Sue coming out of the door to meet him. No man had ever suffered more inconvenience from his own charity, Christian or heathen, than Phillotson had done in letting Sue go. He had been knocked about from pillar to post at the hands of the virtuous almost beyond endurance. He had been nearly starved and now was dependent entirely upon the very small stipend from the school of this village, where the parson had got ill-spoken of for befriending him. He had often thought of Arabella's remarks that he should have been more severe with Sue, that her recalcitrant spirit would soon have been broken. Yet such was his obstinance and illogical disregard of opinion and of the principles in which he had been trained that his convictions on the rightness of his course with his wife had not been disturbed. So everybody here has a kind of Job-like quest, save Arabella. Phillotson, as much as Jude in his way, you know, Phillotson in a lot of ways is uh, Jude's forefather. It was Phillotson, of course, who encouraged Jude to get an education. Phillotson, who had set Jude upon his own lonely path. But we remember that Phillotson himself had taken that path and, like Jude, had failed and, like Jude, had married and seen his marriage collapse under circumstances that belied the mores of the day. So Phillotson, in walking the path that he's walking up and down that incline in Mary Green, has literally been on that path before in his own life, literally and figuratively. So in a way, this is all Phillotson's fault. Fuck that guy. Phillotson was the one who inspired Jude, who made him dream for the first time as a boy that he could be something more than some raggedy-ass kid watching out for crows in the farmer's fields. But Phillotson had been inspired himself at some point. Phillotson himself had come from some modest means and had made something of himself and had given it up because of Sue. Principles which could be subverted by feeling in one direction were liable to the same catastrophe in another. 
The instincts which had allowed him to give Sue her liberty now enabled him to regard her as none the worse for her life with Jude. No, really? She lost three kids and a fourth on the way. You don't think her life is any worse for her life with Jude? He wished for her still in his curious way. If he did not love her, and apart from policy, soon felt that he would be gratified to have her again as his, always provided that she came willingly. But artifice was necessary, he had found, for stemming the cold and inhumane blast of the world's contempt. And here were the materials ready-made. By getting Sue back and remarrying her on the respectable plea of having entertained erroneous views of her and gained his divorce wrongfully, he might acquire some comfort, resume his old courses, perhaps return to the Shaston School, if not even to the church as a licentiate, 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 you know, meaning candy striper. So that's interesting. He's conniving now for the first time, not out of love. He's saying, I don't necessarily love her, but the policy which could allow me to remarry her might also allow me to regain my former stature in life. He's saying I could use Sue to get out of this little backwater hillbilly town and go back to someplace fancy like Shaston, if not even to the church. I could regain my station in life and perhaps even exceed it because he would now be seen as a victim for having divorced her for erroneous reasons. He could be seen as being extremely charitable for remarrying her and restoring her. Sly, conniving Phillotson, oh, you dog. But, and he does say, provided that she comes willingly. He's willing to take her back, right? But she has to come to him. She has to do it willingly. But if she does... He's going to take full advantage of the situation. He thought he would write to Gillingham to inquire his views and what he thought of his, Phillotson's, sending a letter to her. Gillingham replied, naturally, that now she was gone, it were best to let her be, and considered that if she were anybody's wife, she was the wife of the man to whom she had borne three children and owed such tragical adventures. Probably, as his attachment to her seemed unusually strong, the singular pair would make their union legal in course of time, and all would be well and decent and in order. But they won't. Sue won't, exclaimed Phillotson to himself. Gillingham is so matter-of-fact. She's affected by Christminster sentiment and teaching. I can see her views on the indissolubility. I gotta, re- I gotta repronounce that word. I know the word. Indissolubility. Indissolubility. It can't be, it can't be dissolved of marriage well enough. And I know where she got them. They are not mine, but I shall make use of them to further mine. Oh, so he's becoming almost Shakespearean in his Machiavellian way. So I've, I've, I've now crossed Shakespeare and Machiavelli in the same sentence, Shakespearean in his Machiavellian ways. That was stupid of me, and I apologize. I 
apologize. But he'd be, let's dispense with the Shakespeare. Hey, Shakespeare, dispense with the Shakespeare and just say Machiavellian. He wrote a brief reply to Gillingham. I know I am entirely wrong, but I don't agree with you. As to her having lived and had three children by him, my feeling is, though I can advance no logical or moral defense of it on the old lines, that it has done little more than finish her education. I shall write to her and learn whether what this woman said is true or no. As he had made up his mind to do this before he had written to his friend, there had not been much reason for writing to the latter at all. Well, I was thinking the same thing, Tom. There was really no reason to, to put that part in. We, you're just reaffirming what you've already said. Like, he's got it in his head. He's going to do this. There was no reason to have him write to Gillingham, but you put it in because maybe you had a word count to hit that day. However, it was Phillotson's way to act thus. He accordingly addressed a carefully considered epistle to Sue, and knowing her emotional temperament through a radamanthine, radamanthine strictness into the lines here and there. Now, fortunately for us, radamanthine has a little footnote after it, so we'll see what that means. That's number 59. And so we have to... Ah! Radamanthus was one of the judges of hell, as Lempriere put it in his classic dictionary, a description Hardy might have thought relevant here. The classical reference is pursued a little later with the acarontic shades. So, you know, you're explaining shit to me and just making it more confusing in the explanation. So we'll just say, you know, judge of hell. So he, he gets the strictness into the lines here and there, meaning it's like a condemning tone. He put that in there, carefully hiding his heterodox feelings not to frighten her. He stated that, it having come to his knowledge that her views had considerably changed, he felt compelled to say that his own, too, were largely modified by events subsequent to their parting. He would not conceal from her that passionate love had little to do with his communication. It arose from a wish to make their lives, if not a success, at least no such disastrous failure as they had threatened to become, through his acting on what he had considered at the time a principle of justice, charity, and reason. Okay, so he's being somewhat halfway honest with her here. Because there's another half that he's not admitting to, I think. The half that he's admitting to is he's saying, look, your life sucks, my life sucks. Maybe we can combine our suckiness and make make something a little less sucky together. It will almost be like a business partnership. You come to me, I come to you, we kind of reestablish ourselves, and everything will be better than it was. But I think, as I'm reading these lines... That maybe even hidden to himself is the hope and suspicion that if he can only regain her in his life, she will eventually, ultimately love him. That his love for her has not faded with time. And I don't know that he's even admitting this to himself right now, Um, but it seems obvious to me. And to, and to you, dear listener, it's obvious to you too, because I said so. 
To indulge one's instinctive and uncontrolled sense of justice and right was not, he had found, permitted with impunity in an old civilization like ours. It was necessary to act under an acquired and cultivated sense of the same if you wish to enjoy an average share of comfort and honor and to let crude loving kindness take care of itself. It just occurs to me as I'm reading this paragraph, there's something interesting. He says, in an old civilization like Hours. And that contrasts rather sharply in a way that I hadn't really considered before that little line about how we Americans consider our own civilization versus the way Phillotson would consider his. Phillotson probably feels indeed like his civilization is very old. The land that he walks on has been you know, more or less the same for hundreds of years, if not a thousand or more. He probably feels keenly this civilization that he inhabits has remained somewhat stayed for centuries. Compare that with the American experience, where our civilization is only a couple hundred years old and has always suffered from tumult and change. We have never felt settled as a civilization, and so we are more given to exploring new ideas, new opinions, new thoughts, new mores. And though we may reject them, We are at least open to considering them because so much has changed in our own short history. But for Phillotson, looking at at his own life in the lives of his uh, ancestors, it has probably seemed more or less unchanged from a civilizational point of view, the way that you comport yourself day to day. But now, now, as has been the theme throughout this book, everything is changing. He may not even understand why, the way Hardy seems to intuit why, that this onrush of technology and this onrush of money that has flowed into the country and indeed the world at this point is changing everything. And so Phillotson is still clinging to the old ways. Jude and Sue, of course, tried to escape them, but their gravity, as we know, remains too strong, and they've crashed landed back on that old civilization. If this whole story had taken place 50 years later, the whole thing would be different. Everything about it would be different. You know, they would have gone through the First World War. The whole British Empire would be collapsing around them. And for Sue and Jude, that would have been a good thing because nothing would seem as it was. And new ideas were taking hold. New ideas were taking root, but it's just too soon. 30 years, you know? He suggested that she should come to him there at Mary Green. On second thoughts, he took out the last paragraph but one, and having rewritten the letter, he dispatched it immediately, and in some excitement awaited the issue. A few days after a figure moved through the white fog which enveloped the Beersheba suburb of Christminster towards the quarter in which Jude Folly had taken up his lodging since his division with from Sue. A timid knock sounded upon the door of his abode. 
It was evening, so he was at home, and by a species of divination, he jumped up and rushed to the door himself. Will you come out with me? I would rather not come in. I want to, to talk with you and to go with you to the cemetery. It had been in the trembling accents of Sue that these words came. Jude put on his hat. It is dreary for you to be out, he said, but if you prefer not to come in, I don't mind. Yes, I do. I shall not keep you long. Jude was too much affected to go on talking at first. She, too, was now such a mere cluster of nerves that all initiatory power seemed to have left her, and they proceeded through the fog like acherontic shades for a long while. So remember, and you know, that was the reference that he was, that the footnote said there was going to come acherontic shades and blah, 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 blah. I think that means like wraiths or something without sound or gesture. I want to tell you, she presently said, her voice now quick, now slow, so that you may not hear of it by chance. I'm going back to Richard. He has so magnanimously agreed to forgive all. Going back? How can you go? He's going to marry me again. That is for form's sake, and to satisfy the world, which does not see things as they are. But of course I am his wife already. Nothing has changed that. He turned upon her with an anguish that was well nigh fierce. But you are my wife. Yes, you are. You know it. I have always regretted that faint of ours in going away and pretending to come back legally married to save appearances. I loved you, and you loved me, and we closed with each other, and that made the marriage. We still love, you as well as I. I know it, Sue. Therefore, our marriage is not cancelled. <laughs> I kind of like that. Our marriage is not cancelled. And so it is, and so it shall be. Good day, sir. I say good day. But of course, it is not up to Jude now to say what is canceled and what is not, because by law, they never had marriage. By law, she can cancel it anytime she wants because they are not married. And I'm surprised that Jude is surprised here because she has said she's going back to Richard. And now that it's upon him, he's acting all surprised. Our marriage is not canceled. Yes, I know how you see it, she answered, with despairing self-suppression. But I am going to marry him again, as it would be called by you. Strictly speaking, you too. Don't mind my saying it, Jude. You should take back Arabella. I should. Good God, what next? But how, if you and I had married legally as we were on the point of doing? I should have felt just the same, that ours was not a marriage, and I would go back to Richard without repeating the sacrament if he asked me. But the world and its ways have a certain worth, I suppose. Therefore, I concede a repetition of this ceremony. Don't crush all the life out of me by satire and argument, I implore you. I was strongest once, I know, and perhaps I treated you cruelly, but Jude... Return good for evil. I am the weaker now. Don't retaliate upon me, but be kind. Oh, be kind to me, a poor wicked woman who is trying to mend. 
He shook his head hopelessly, his eyes wet. The blow of her bereavement seemed to have destroyed her reasoning faculty. The once keen vision was dimmed. All wrong, all wrong, he said huskily. Error, perversity. It drives me out of my senses. Do you care for him? Do you love him? You know you don't. It will be a fanatic prostitution. God forgive me. Yes, that's what it will be. I don't love him. I must, must own it in deepest remorse. But I shall try to learn to love him by obeying him. I mean, this really could be the uh, the uh, the uh, prequel to A Handmaid's Tale. You know, it really could be. You know, she it, she is just taking, as he says, a fanatic prostitution. That's what she, that is the figure she is assuming, that through religion, bereavement, guilt, abasement, she is willing to go handmaid's hat in hand back to him and to learn to love him through obeyance. I mean, you know, Elizabeth Moss, paging Elizabeth Moss, because that's where we are right now. That's the life she foresees. That's what she's looking at. She's looking at just being essentially his indentured servant, his marital servant to do as he commands and in doing so hope to find love. But of course, it's not his love she's really seeking. It is God's love. And if you take it further, what she's really seeking is self-forgiveness. And now I must seek your forgiveness <laughs> because it's time for a break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H track, all wheel drive, and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, we're back. That wasn't so bad, was it? So Sue has told Jude that she's going back to Phillotson, uh, but he is not having it. Let's continue. Jude argued, urged, implored. 
but her conviction was proof against all. It seemed to be the one thing on earth on which she was firm, and that her firmness in this had left her tottering in every other impulse and wish she possessed. I have been considerate enough to let you know the whole truth and to tell it you myself, she said, in cut tones, that you might not consider yourself slighted by hearing of it at second hand. I have even owned the extreme fact that I do not love him. I did not think you would be so rough with me for doing so. I was going to ask you to give you away. <laughs> Ooh, snap. <laughs> you know, at the marriage, you wanted me to walk you down the aisle. Is that what you wanted, girl? Because I ain't going to do it, girl. To give you away? No. To send my boxes to me, if you would. But I suppose you won't. Why, of course I will. What, isn't he coming to fetch you? To marry you from here? He won't condescend to do that? No, I won't let him. I go to him voluntarily, just as I went away from him. We are to be married at his little church at Mary Green. And you remember that little church at Mary Green, I think from the very first episode. We have heard of this little church, and it was at one point an ancient edifice that had been torn down and reconstructed in a slapdash manner. And that's the church they're going to get married in. Because all things now are temporal. Nothing is set anymore. Everything is kind of slapdash in this world. And as much as they're trying to hold on to the old ways, they cannot. She was so sadly sweet in what he called her wrong-headedness that Jude could not help being moved to tears more than once for pity of her. I never knew such a woman for doing impulsive penances as you, Sue. No sooner does one expect you to go straight on as the one rational proceeding than you double round the corner. Ah, well, let that go, Jude. I must say goodbye. But I wanted you to go to the cemetery with me. Let our farewell be there, beside the graves of those who died to bring home to me the error of my views. Fuck that. Fuck that noise. I hate that. I hate that point of view. I hate that others' lives should be lived so that you can see the error of your ways. That is such narcissistic bullshit. And I hate it. And I hate that she said it. They turned in the direction of the place and the gate was open to them on application. Sue had been there often and she knew the way to the spot in the dark. They reached it and stood still. It is here. I should like to part, said she. So be it. Don't think me hard because I have acted on conviction. Your generous devotion to me is unparalleled, Jude. Your worldly failure, if you have failed, is to your credit rather than to your blame. Remember that the best and greatest among mankind are those who do themselves no worldly good. Every successful man is more or less a selfish man. The devoted fail. Charity seeketh not her own. 
and that's footnote 60, which I imagine that sounds very biblically to me. Uh, Corinthians it's from. Well, don't discuss. Oh, and then he says, in that chapter, we are at one ever beloved darling and on it will part friends. Its verses will stand fast when all the rest that you call religion has passed away. Now don't discuss it. Goodbye, Jude, my fellow sinner and kindest friend. Goodbye, my mistaken wife. Goodbye. End of chapter four. And she's doing a neat little trick here because it was her who created his worldly failure. (laughs) You know, I mean, he was on a path and it was a rocky path. If we're talking about just kind of worldly success. After he left Arabella, we sort of feel like by hook or by crook, he might have made something of himself. He had that kind of drive and passion and he was devoted to his worldview the worldview that she robbed him of bit by bit by bit. She pulled at the fiber of his being until he was left in tatters, until he had nothing but her. Now you and I, with our modern sensibilities, may agree more or less with her more humanistic philosophies. But for him... It was all grounded in something, that old civilization that Phillotson mused upon. It was grounded in something ancient. And he could have clung to that and have been, he could have been happy or happier had Sue not robbed him of it. Now look, he and Sue had found happiness and they had a few good years together. But after this tragedy, when they could have clung more tightly together as Phillotson had thought they might. Instead, she turns around and reverses course entirely. The, what, volte face? Is that what we, is that what we called it? And departs, you know, the same way she departed from Phillotson. And he's left going, well, what the fuck? You took everything from me. And now you leave me destitute and alone. So chapter four has ended in classic, miserable fashion. The way shit always ends on Jude the Obscure. She's going back to Phillotson. Jude doesn't know what he's going to do. They're saying goodbye uh, literally on the graves of their dead children. And Jude, true to character, is being as kind as he can be. He is wishing her well. He's going to pack her boxes for her and send them on. Again, he's mirroring Phillotson. The difference between Jude and Phillotson, though, is that Phillotson sees opportunity in a way that Jude does not. Phillotson has a kind of pragmatism to him, a cold and calculating pragmatism that Jude lacks. Or rather, Jude's own moral conscience is so narrow and constrained. It takes a lot to move it. But once it is moved, he is resolute. So he cannot return to his old ways. He cannot return to 
Christianity. He can't go back. She took that from him. But Phillotson sees an opportunity to return to his old ways. He sees a way to climb out of the cellar in which he has been dwelling, the cellar that is Mary Green, you know, bottom of the barrel, backwoods little town. So I don't know what's going to happen. I never do. But there's a kind of lovely, uh, 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 what sort of like symmetry with everything that's going on. Everything is folding back in on itself. We know that Jude and Arabella will have some final scene. They'll have something together. Something's going to transpire between them. You know, she's got her cheeks all dimpled and she's going to weasel her way back into his life. Now, how that resolves, we do not know. We do not know. But I bet it won't be good. And on that note, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode of Jude the Obscure. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. If you would like information about sponsoring our show, email hello at midroll.com. From the wilds of Connecticut, I'm Michael Ian Black. <laughs>